0: What is up, everyone? My name is Chris Prosser, and I'd like to welcome you to Theology and a Cup of Coffee. I am real excited to launch this show alongside the Light and Lion podcast, which I co-host with my good friend Dakota Jacobson, and you can think of this show as a sub-podcast of sorts to Light and Lion. Dakota and I both wanted individual platforms to have the ability to express the areas of theology that we are each particularly passionate about and because we just celebrated the 505th anniversary of the start of the Protestant Reformation, I thought that there would not be a better topic to use to kick off this new show. However, before we tackle that, I wanted to cover a few housekeeping items just so my listeners can know what to expect on the show moving forward. First, what will make this podcast any different from the work being done on Light and Lion? Well, As to where Light and Lion is certainly more conversational and high-level and practical in its discussion, on this show, we're going to be getting more so into the theological weeds, so to speak, and really deep dive on a variety of doctrinal discussions. Now, that does not mean that we will not be talking about practical applications on this show, because that is definitely not the case. Being able to apply your theology is certainly a very important topic, so The best way, perhaps, to distinguish between the two shows is that the goal of this show is going to be to provide the doctrinal foundation for a lot of the discussions that we will have on Light and Lion. And so to do that, the three main areas that we're going to focus on with this show are going to be biblical, exegetical, and systematic theology. And obviously, that means that we're going to be spending a lot of time in Scripture. And every now and again, we will sprinkle in some historical theology like we're going to do today. However, these three key areas that I just mentioned are where we're going to spend most of our time. And also, I want to mention quickly that Dakota has his own show, Waging War, where he discusses how to be biblically equipped to fight against the flesh and sin, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of valuable lessons. I just listened to the first episode and it was great, so I encourage you all to check, check out that show as well. So transitioning now to today's episode and today's topic, there are a few reasons that I thought it would be a good idea to discuss the topic of the Protestant Reformation, even if we just do so briefly. So first and foremost, not many people are aware of both the historical and the spiritual significance of the 16th century Protestant Reformation. And this is particularly true in America, which is sort of ironic when you think about it, just considering that Protestantism started really with the reformation and you know i don't want to say that most people in america are protestant or catholic or whatever but i do think it's a little bit ironic because just in my experience protestantism is very prevalent in america and this theology is based on the doctrines that were fleshed out during the reformation i'm not going to get into all the you know denominational differences but it's certainly a huge huge event in history secondly Anytime I mention the word reformed or reformed theology to anyone, namely other Christians who do not fall in that camp, you could say, you could tell that they start to get extremely nervous. You know, they're looking over their shoulder like I'm about to just grab my Bible and bash them over the head with Romans 9 and unconditional election or whatever other doctrines people typically associate with when they hear the word reformed. But I think some of that tension that people feel towards the Reformed tradition of theology, even more specifically the theology of John Calvin, is due to the lack of understanding that I talked about in my first point. In order for us to understand and appreciate Reformed theology today, we really need to be able to understand the Protestant Reformation in its place in church history. And thirdly, even though the events of the Reformation occurred over 500 years ago, the discussion is still very much relevant today. Mark Knoll has a really great book, and it's on the confessions and catechisms of the Reformation. In the first chapter, he covers Luther's 95 Theses, and in that book, he says... The message behind, and I'm sort of paraphrasing here, but the message behind Luther's 95 Theses is just as relevant in the age of electronic preachers, and I'll even add prosperity preachers. Um, It's just as relevant as it was in the day of the indulgence peddlers. And also speaking of relevance for today, one of the core battle cries of the Reformers was the Latin phrase, Ecclesia Reformata, Semper Reformanda, which means the church reformed, always reforming. And you're going to have to forgive me if my Latin pronunciations are not pristine from a small town farming community in Texas, and we did not spend a lot of time, a.k.a. any time at all, learning Latin and Greek. So you'll have to forgive me on that. But the church reformed, always reforming. And this is really a battle cry um, of exhortation for every generation to be on guard against any corruption to the true gospel whether it be from within or without the visible church. And one of the ways that we can do this, of course, in conjunction with being biblically literate, and what I mean by that is knowing what the Bible says and why it says what it says, we can study and understand the past. And in the case of the Protestant Reformation, we can better understand how to identify corruption to the gospel and then how we can boldly defend the truth. So moving into the historical context, the main point that I'd like to make here is that it is pretty accurate to say in a way that the Reformation was really just a matter of time. And here's what I mean by that. There was already a lot of work going on in terms um, of reform before Luther came along and nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg. Okay, so first, We have to recognize that Luther was not the first person to realize that the Roman Catholic Church had become corrupted and needed reform. Luther himself actually suggests in one of his writings that the downturn of Rome probably started at some point back in the 8th century, which is eight centuries before the event that we're discussing today. So this was not an overnight problem. Luther was not some egotistical you know, jerk who thought that he knew better than the Pope. There was... Uh, it, this was a long time coming, right? There there was a lot of people that recognized that corruption had seeped its way into the church. And some of that corruption that was most prevalent could be accurately summarized as negligence, ignorance, absenteeism, and sexual misconduct. And now, that isn't to say that this was all that was going on. And it also isn't to say, and this is really important, that there were not some really godly men in Rome but as we observe history it is an irrefutable fact that there was a lot more corruption going on in the church than there was god honoring practice and so all of this led all this corruption is what led to this sort of pre-reformation work that i'm about to cover and again a lot of this work can be traced back to before luther was even born and so some notable men though that we can talk about sort of closer to that reformation time period um we could talk about guys like lorenzo valla lorenzo valla that is and these days, he's actually referred to as the father of modern biblical criticism. So Lorenzo Valla, he was a humanist, and that does not mean humanist in today's terms where we more so associate that associate that with atheism. Um, it's a totally different uh, thing. Um, and so Valla had some pretty big impacts on his day, namely, first and foremost, he was able to show that the Donation of Constantine document, which was a... Um, a document that pretty much said since the emperor was moving his headquarters to Constantinople that the pope could be in charge of the west. Uh, Valla actually showed this to be a forgery, and this was a big deal because it started to cast doubts in the minds of the people. And I would like to think it's pretty likely that the people started asking themselves questions like, okay, well, what else has been forged or what else is not true that's coming from the office of the papacy? And another huge contribution from Valla was that he published a comparison between the Latin Vulgate translation of the Bible, which still to this day, by the way, is the official Bible of the Latin church, and he compared that to the original Greek, which he called Annotations of the New Testament. If I'm not mistaken, he actually didn't publish this. I believe Erasmus, another uh, very important Christian humanist um, that we're not going to talk about today, but I believe Erasmus actually published this uh, work. Uh, But this publication would have a huge impact on Luther, especially dealing with texts like Matthew 4.17, where in the Latin Vulgate it reads, do penance. The more accurate translation from the original Greek would be, be penitent, which these two translations have totally different implications on faith and practice. And so another two really important figures to mention here are John Wycliffe and John Huss. Now, in the next episode, I'm going to talk more in depth about these two, but at a high level, it's important to know that they were both pretty vocal about challenging some of the core teachings of the papacy. Wycliffe, for example, he strongly opposed some of the core doctrines of the Roman church, like transubstantiation and priestly mediation. And another really important core driver for Wycliffe was the belief that every man should have access to the Holy Scriptures in his own language, And as a result of that view, he initiated the translation of the Latin Vulgate into English. Now, obviously, William Tyndale comes later on and he actually will translate from the original languages. But this was a huge, huge deal because this was starting to put Holy Scripture in the hands of your everyday people, not just the clergy and not just the pope. And so after Wycliffe passed away, John Huss sort of carries a torch, so to speak. And he really emphasized the authority of scripture alone in the life of the believer. Now, both of these men were actually condemned as heretics when in fact, when you look at what they stood for, they based their arguments on the teachings of scripture, not the traditions of the Pope and not the traditions of the church in Rome. So about a hundred years after Hus's burned at the stake for essentially just teaching that the scripture is not the Pope or tradition is the authority of the believer, which even saying that sentence out loud sounds insane, but Luther comes on the scene. And again, in the next episode, I will talk more about some of these key figures, and I hate to overly repeat myself, but for the sake of context, leading up to the 95 Theses, which really most people believe is the start of the Protestant Reformation, October the 31st, 1517. Leading up to the 95 Theses, Luther was an Augustinian monk. And he really, really battled with doubt and fear over his sin. He he had some training as a lawyer. And so he understood the payment and the consequence of breaking God's holy and righteous law. And so I believe it was in the year 1510. Luther, he gets sent to Rome on some monastic business, essentially just a business trip. And while he was there, he got a real up close and personal view of the corruption going on in you know the holy city. And, and so fast forward a little bit and a man by the name of Johann Tetzel comes into the story who was an indulgent salesman. So we have Luther, he takes his trip to Rome, he gets some seeds of doubt sort of planted in him, and he's, he's feeling a lot of confliction. And then Johann Tetzel answers the story. So if you're not aware, though, of what an indulgence is, really quickly, the Roman Catholic Church teaches, this is still an official teaching of the Catholic Church, that there is a treasury of merit which is basically leftover righteousness from the saints. So in other words, these saints acquired so much righteousness that they not only had enough righteousness to enter directly into heaven, they got to bypass purgatory, but they had leftover righteousness. And this went into what is called the treasury of merit. And the Pope alone has the keys to this treasury, and he can dispense that merit at his own discretion. And at some points in history, you know, this treasury of merit was used to incentivize people to partake in the crusades, that sort of thing. But the promise being here is that if you have indulgences, if you are able to come into possession of these indulgences, the more merit you acquire in this life, the less time that you'll have to spend in purgatory being purified of any remaining sin. And so also when you're granted an indulgence, you're given a certificate, which sort of just proves its authenticity. And what had happened was the Pope had given permission for the selling of indulgences at this particular time in order to fund the building of St. Peter's Basilica. And one of the means this was accomplished was through the indulgence preachers. And I use the term preachers extremely lightly, like Johann Tetzel. So there is no doubt that Tetzel was certainly more of a salesman than he was a preacher. And we can see this in his famous ditty, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And so we see that it was this practice that sent Luther off to write his 95 Theses, again, which many consider to be the start of the Reformation. And by the way, this is, it's worth mentioning at this point that when Luther nailed the Theses to the church door, his goal was not to separate from the church. He loved the church and he just wanted to see her reformed. But like we'll talk about in future episodes, the papacy had built up some protective walls that had made any real reform very unlikely, if not just totally impossible. And so, now that we've covered a very high-level understanding of the historical context, we can now begin to answer the question, well, what was the Reformation really all about? And the best way to summarize the answer to that is to explain two key principles, which we will refer to as the formal and material principle of the Reformation. Starting with the formal principle, we can think of this as a matter of authority. In question form, we might say, who has the final say-so on the matter at hand? And the way one of my seminary professors, Dr. James Anderson, explained this concept is that the formal principle is really the battlegrounds for which the war is going to be fought. So the Reformers believed in sola scriptura, which means scripture alone, And as we can very well guess, this was a huge problem in the eyes of Rome because they taught and still do teach that the pope alone has the authority to provide the only official and proper interpretation of the scriptures. So when the reformer said, nope, scripture holds all authority, even over the pope, there was without a doubt going to be some trouble. So whoever holds the final authority is going to give the final verdict when it it concerns what we're going to talk about next, which is the material principle. So the material principle, on the other hand, is a matter of justification. Again, if we think of it in terms of a question, we could ask, how is a sinner justified in the sight of a holy and righteous God? If we look at the reformers, we see that they taught sola fide or faith alone. This also varied from the Roman Catholic teaching that we are justified by faith plus works. And now I can't remember who explained it to me this way, but this is really helpful. Uh, a helpful way of remembering the difference between Protestantism and Catholicism on the topic of justification. And it's actually a math equation. So if you're like me and you hate math, just bear with me, I promise you, this is helpful. So on the Roman Catholic view, the equation will go like this. Faith plus works equals justification. But on the Protestant view, we would say that faith equals justification plus works. And that just means that good works are a result of our salvation, not the cause of it. And this view also really helps us make sense of texts when, on the one hand, we have James saying things like faith without works is dead, but then on the other hand, we have the Apostle Paul writing things like no one is justified by works, and Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so these two points really summarize what was being fought for by the reformers. They believed scripture was the supreme authority for the life of the believer not the church or tradition and that all believers are justified by faith alone in christ alone not by works and not by sacraments and as a result of these principles comes the very great theology of the protestant reformation and here we have what is known as the five solas and the doctrines of grace and i hate to keep saying this but I'm going to cover all of these way more in depth in future episodes so they can each get the proper treatment that they deserve. But I want to be sure that I mention them briefly here. So first, we have the five solas. Early in the discussion, we've already mentioned two of them, sola scriptura and sola fide. The remaining three are sola gratia, solus Christus, and sola Deo Gloria. If we put these in their proper order, we get saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, according to the scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. And one of the key characteristics of the Reformed tradition Reformed theology can easily be spotted in the solos. And I say that because all of God's works, his grace, his provision of Christ and his provision um, of the scriptures are all for God's glory alone. We are certainly benefactors of God's works and his grace, but he is acting primarily for his glory alone. that that's a really comforting thing when you think about it and reformed theology sometimes gets a bad rap especially in a modern culture and i'm not saying that it's a perfect system however i do agree and i will say so publicly that there is no more noble and worthy cause than to act and to live with god's glory as our ultimate purpose and our ultimate aim so even if you disagree with the theology of guys like luther and calvin i think at least we should take away the fact that in the reformed tradition We should strive as we might. We will fail at this, but by God's grace, we should strive to exalt God's glory above all things. And then secondly, we have the doctrines of grace. Now, in my experience, the five souls really aren't all that controversial, unless, of course, the conversation is taking place between a Protestant and a Roman Catholic. It is the doctrines of grace that garner the most attention and debate. So if you aren't familiar with the doctrines of grace, they are most popularly known by the acronym TULIP, However, this is a little bit dated and R.C. Sproul has a fantastic book called What is Reformed Theology where he gives more accurate and I I hate to say modernized, but modernized headings for each of these doctrines. But for the sake of familiarity and time, I'm gonna use TULIP here. So TULIP stands for total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. And basically to summarize these, these points here, We start with man's fallen condition and his inability, really, to please God. And we work systematically through God electing some for salvation and giving those whom he has chosen both the saving and preserving grace to keep them in the faith until the second coming of Christ, which, of course, is when the final judgment of the world will take place. So that's doctrines of Grace. Again, super high level. To wrap up this episode, I have a few closing thoughts as we continue to think about the reformation of the 16th century. First, we should really gain an appreciation for God's providence specifically and how he has protected the gospel from corruption and perversion over the last 2000 years. You know, we're talking about the reformation today, but this has been an ongoing thing since the gospel has come to us from Jesus and from the apostles. God has preserved that for the last 2000 years, uncorrupted and unperverted. And it just blows my mind to think that, you know, in terms of the Protestant Reformation, not even one of the most powerful institutions in the world could corrupt the pure gospel that Jesus brought to earth. Now, um, just side note on that, that's not to say that I believe that all Roman Catholics believe a false gospel. I have many friends that are in the Roman Catholic Church and are saved by Christ. And actually they would probably say that, they would affirm the teaching that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, not according to our own works. However, I also want to say that Rome officially teaches a different gospel than what we actually find in the scriptures, which is what made the Protestant Reformation necessary. Scripture teaches us of God's grace and salvation, not a salvation earned by faith plus something extra done by man like works. And so our response to all this should really be praise and worship for what God has done for us to even have the gospel today. Second... I think the doctrines we just talked about namely the doctrines of grace give us a way better understanding of why the gospel really is the greatest news in the world. We live in a postmodern, you know, culture, postmodern world that is so self-absorbed and greedy. And as a result of that, we also tend to water down our sin and the severity of it. Out of the Reformation, We get a real gut wrenching reminder that we are sinners and have committed cosmic treason, you know, again, to use some of Dr. Sproul's language there, um, against a holy and righteous God. So, if we are to have a conversation about eternity or about the gospel, if we don't understand the fact, that every last human ever born other than Jesus Christ is born deserving of hell for their rebellion and sin against God, we absolutely cannot and will not have an appreciation for the gospel message that Jesus proclaimed. It's like Christ said when he was sort of challenged by his, or, or, or challenged about rather, his association with sinners. He says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And really what I believe is the theology from the, Reforma- the Reformation reminds us that if we are honest with ourselves, we look at our lives and we look at our heart and we evaluate ourselves, we all fall into that category of the sick who are in need of the great physician's healing touch. Third and finally, I realize for some of you, this might be your first ever exposure to the Reformation or Reformed theology. And for others, you might find yourself as stout opponents to the doctrines that I just discussed. So regardless of where you find yourself, I'm going to humbly ask for grace and understanding as we explore these things together. The goal of this show is not to convince people that one school of theology is right and the other is wrong, but instead I want to get into the word together. I want to see what it says, and I want for us all to be willing to follow where it leads, even when it's difficult and even more specifically when it confronts our beliefs. So again, if you're listening to the Podcast, you know, episode one, you're thinking to yourself, okay, great, I'm not listening to some Calvinist, you know, podcast. I'm not going to be brainwashed or indoctrinated. Uh, First off, I'm not a Calvinist. Uh, I'm a Christian. My loyalty is to the King of Heaven, Jesus Christ, and to the scriptures. And um, I'm not loyal necessarily to a theological camp. While I will say that I have Reformed or Calvinist leanings, my loyalty is to God and to the scriptures. And second, I do believe that it is a good spiritual exercise to listen to others with whom you disagree. For one, it'll challenge you to think more deeply about your own beliefs and convictions. And two, you might actually find yourself in error and in need of correction. Now my encouragement to all of us, including myself, is this. Nobody, especially not me, is 100% correct on all matters of biblical interpretation and theology. These things have been discussed for thousands of years, and they've been debated for thousands of years. So there has to be grace and understanding. And, under, and as we look at that and realize that, that you know it's been discussed for so long, we have to seek grace and understanding. So as we seek to obey what the Apostle Paul says in his writings, to be unified rather than split over doctrinal disagreements. But at the same time, We absolutely cannot tolerate blatant false teaching and be passive for the sake of some sort of false unity. And guys, that is going to be it for this first episode. I hope you were able to take away something valuable from this time. This has been Theology and a Cup of Coffee. I'm Chris Prosser, and I'll see you next time.